Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. About that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the artisans. These he gathered together with the workers of the same trade and said, Men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. You also see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost the whole of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned and she will be and she will be deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. When they heard this, they were enraged and shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with the confusion, and people rushed together to the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's travel companions. Paul wished to go into the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some officials of the province of Asia, who were friendly to him, sent him a message urging him not to venture into the, into the theater. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd gave instructions to Alexander, whom the Jews had pushed forward, and Alexander motioned for silence and tried to make a defense before the people. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two, for about two hours, all of them shouted in unison, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he, he said, Citizens of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the statue that fell from heaven? Since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. You have brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the artisans with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges there against one another. If there is anything further you want to know, it must be settled in the regular assembly. For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today 
since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please, please take a moment for silent reflection. Gracious God, in this moment of silence and reflection, we come from a variety of backgrounds and perspectives as we approach these scriptures and these stories today, some of us believing, some of us unbelieving, many of us somewhere in between, wondering if we could believe these things, some of us feeling close to you right now, others of us remembering a time when you seemed so close and now you seem a million miles away and we're wondering what happened to you. We come to this moment hopeful, joyful, optimistic, fearful, angry, depressed. But however we may approach these scriptures in our diversity and differences, help us to see we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, each of us is beautiful, created in your image and likeness with honor and dignity. And at the same time, each of us is fractured, broken. We easily wander. We make a mess of things. And your response to the beauty and brokenness of our lives and our world is not to say, yuck, or to run away, but rather to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray now that your Holy Spirit would teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed, convince us of your great love for us, and send us out to be agents of your grace and renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I, I love, I'm really enjoying going through the book of Acts. Oftentimes Acts is known as Acts of the Apostles, which I would say it should probably be called Acts of the Holy Spirit because the apostles are often secondary, passive, two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes they get it, often they don't. But God continues to move forward with faithfulness and grace as renewal comes through the land. And so we see, you know, as Greg reminded us the other week, Acts is the second part of this work that a man who we know as Luke put together, the Gospel of Luke and then Acts. And they come together and it says at about that time, so what has happened since last week when Paul was in Ephesus, he first was in the marketplace in the Agora, which was the center of communications, media, finance, politics, and the university, the center of the city. And you see the gospel go out and renew all things. Then he goes up to the Areopagus, the, the center of thought, right? And, and proclamation and connecting with the divine. And you see the gospel go out as, he says, the, the God that you seek to know so badly is actually closer to you than the air you breathe. So your hard work is actually just to open yourself up to that God. And as Paul continues to stay in the region and, and then also to travel around, a, a, a bit of time goes by and we see, you know, 
all sorts of, you know, kind of amazing stories take place where people are being baptized, brought into the kingdom. The last people that you would expect to be Christians become Christians. People who have been in some sort of bondage or addiction or oppression are being released from that. And so they're kind of now enjoying this new freedom and then sent out to be agents of freedom for others. And it's at about this time, as our reading began, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. At first, Christians were known as the way, uh, Greek, ho-hoda, the way, because they followed Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And so this was called the way. Uh, side note, they weren't called Christians until Antioch. And, and the reason why they had to get a new name was because they were so diverse, the world did not know what to call them. This group of ethnically different people and nationally different people, uh, the, the world said, I know what to call you when you're all speaking Hebrew. You're Jews. I know what to call you when you're all speaking Greek. You're Greeks. I don't know what to call it when Jews and Greeks are calling each other brothers and sisters. They had to call them Christians. So these are Christians who are following the way, and at this point, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. For, for some reason at this point, when Luke's telling the story, he like, adopts this phrase. You ever hang out with a friend and like, they say a certain thing, and then they leave town or whatever, and you, you're stuck with that saying for the next month or two until it wears off? I don't know who, who Luke was hanging out with, but... For a while here in Acts, he starts saying, no little, there was no little disturbance. And he stayed with them for no little amount of time. So I want to get the story one day, you know, on the other side of the new creation, what happened there. But here's what happened for them. Christianity is spreading in Ephesus. Ephesus is this amazing, booming, um, diverse, well-populated, actually a tourist town by way of spiritual pilgrimage. Great is the temple of Artemis, we heard. So they had this temple for Artemis, uh, and then her kind of Roman counterpart would have been Diana. So people would come to Ephesus to go to the temple. It's good for business. It's good for tourism. It's good for industry, especially if you are a silversmith and you're making little shrines for Artemis right? So come by the gift shop and get your silver. If Jesus really is God and Artemis is not an image of the divine, then Demetrius is out of a job. And so are all of his friends. This is why they're so angry. No little disturbance broke out concerning the way. And Demetrius gives this speech in verse 26 and he says, they are proclaiming a different, a whole different way of viewing the world. And they actually say that a God made by human hands is not God at all. Now here's what's interesting. The message of Jesus must have gotten out so widely in the city by that point that Demetrius, who is not a Christian, could actually explain the Christian gospel to other people. He had heard it before. A God made by human hands is no God at all. Now, this is actually revolutionary for us as well. We don't put it in those terms, but it is common knowledge Go down here today for brunch, stop anywhere, and awkwardly ask somebody, what is your view of God? And you will likely get an answer that goes something like, nobody really knows. And so when it comes to values of religion or ethics or morals, we all have to figure these things out by ourselves, for ourselves, right? We live in a post-enlightenment, individualistic, post-Christian society. We kind of take that for granted. You know what that is? It's a God made by your own hands, And so you end up with a God that believes the same things you believe, that likes the same political figures you like, that hates the same people and scapegoats the same groups that you do. You have created a God in your own image. And so Demetrius will remind you and me, a God made by human hands is no God at all. That God will genuinely kind of create a, um, 
generally create some sort of an echo chamber for you that just affirms everything that you already believe that God will never challenge you in the most difficult parts of your life to, to grow, will never comfort you in the most challenging parts of life. It's a God made by your own hands. And Christianity comes along and says, you can know the God that created you. Not because you've figured God out, but because God has revealed God's self to you in Jesus. God has rescued you. God has done for you what you can never do for yourselves. You don't need to make God by your own hands. God has made you by God's own hands and rescues you and redeems you by God's own hands. And that is good news. Now the problem is it challenges us. It makes trouble in our life. It troubles us deeply. And we'll look at that. It troubles us because it exposes all the other gods we have in our lives, gods with a small g, what here we might refer to as idols if we want to tack that on. So let's just say the gospel will expose the idols in your life. But those idols will always demand payment of you. And finally, Jesus sets you free from those idols once and for all. Now, as we look at Jesus, the gospel exposes the idols in your life. I know someone's saying, oh my gosh, really? Like, let me check my calendar. Is it really 2000, you know, are we really in 2022 and we're talking about idolatry? Like, isn't this an archaic way of viewing the world? Isn't this ancient and outdated? You know, we, we have moved beyond idols in our society. Please. That's old religion. That's naive. That's myth. And I would say I hear you. But also I'd make the case, they were simply overt about something of which we are covert. Okay? They simply did something out in the open that we all do in our own hearts. And here's what I mean by that. See, they had a God on every corner. A temple, a shrine of some sort for the God of love, for the God of war, for the God of commerce, for the God of sex, for the God of agriculture, for the God of art. And so they would worship these gods because they would expect to get something from it. Better art, better relationship, better sex, better business, success in war. See, they were overt about it, but we're much more covert and more subtle about it. I was reading an article a while back about an anthropologist, sociologist, who doesn't proclaim to be a Christian, but they were talking about the gods of the cities in the United States. And we started to talk about this a bit last week just by way of observation. And this must have been where I got the idea. It was just kind of floating. But he says, you can tell the gods of the different cities in the U.S. He says, you go to Boston, go to Cambridge. The god of Boston and Cambridge is the intellect, knowledge, wisdom. Maybe if you go to Silicon Valley or San Francisco, the God of San Francisco is to disrupt and shake up the world with technology. Go to Washington, D.C., and the God is power. Go to New York, and the God is money. And so then we're invited to ask, what would be the, the God of San Diego? What's, imp what's really important to us? And we touched on this last week. Innovation is important to us. Biotech is important to us. Medicine is important to us. Knowledge is important to us. Education, look at our universities in San Diego. In a city of a, over a million people, there's like, at last time I checked, 200,000 students in our city. Yeah, I think learning means a lot to us. Entertainment means a lot to us. Image means, I mean, we're Southern Californians, come on, image means a lot to us. Both in terms of lifestyle, you live that California life, and having the body to back it up. These things are really important to us. That does something to you. Are you aware of the way that your gods with a small g are operating in your life. Now, oftentimes if we think of like idolatry, 
really elevating something. I think addictions are a pretty bright image of that, very stark image of that. You know, alcohol at first becomes the solution to your problems, but if it becomes the main solution, then it becomes the problem. Same thing with any addiction. It could be shopping, it could be, you know, you name it. But I think there's a lot more going on that's more subtle. Because what we see here, we see even when, uh, when the people are being, you know, when Demetrius is talking to the people, what does he address them on behalf of? He says in verse 27, what's in danger here? You know what's in danger? This trade of ours. Our money. You know what else is in danger? Artemis is going to be deprived of her majesty. And that's what we're known for. That's our identity. Our status is in danger. Later on, when the clerk wants to address everybody, the clerk addresses them on the basis of pride and ego. Citizens of Ephesus, who is there that doesn't know that the city of Ephesus is the temple keeper of the great Artemis? You guys are awesome. And everyone knows it. Right? We can take even good things like financial security, wanting to have a good name in this world, and having a good sense of identity. We can take good things, but if we make them ultimate things, they become idols and they ultimately crumble. That's where it gets more subtle. So the point is, an idol is whatever you look to in order to tell yourself you're going to be okay, you're going to be secure, you're going to make it, you have meaning. Whatever you look to to answer those questions, that is not God. And it will work until it doesn't. And then it will leave you and forsake you. I'll give you some examples. So say you elevate work to the status of most important. Your job will never give its life for you. But it will demand that you give your life for it. I remember reading this article several years ago in the New York Times where Elon Musk was being interviewed, and it was at a time that Tesla was going through a particular amount of turmoil. And Elon Musk describes this part of his life. Now we know he is one of the most wealthy people in the world. He's sending rockets to Mars. He's doing all kinds of things. Um, In this hour-long interview, Musk choked up several times, noting that he nearly missed his brother's wedding this summer and spent his own birthday holed up in Tesla's offices at the company's race to meet elusive production targets. Asked if exhaustion was taking a toll on his physical health, Mr. Musk answered, it's not been great, actually. I've had friends come by who are really concerned. This is Elon Musk at the top of his game, at the pinnacle of the earth. He's reached the top, and he missed his brother's birthday. He spent his own ber- almost missed his brother's wedding, spent his own birthday in his own office. Now, you might not be Elon Musk. I know you're not. Well, if, if Elon Musk was here, we might not know it. He could have an invisibility cloak. But, <laughs> but you see the pattern. So the question is, how is your job demanding your life of you? Or it could be in the area of image, the image you project to the world. And with social media, it's only expanded. It's only exacerbated. I listened to a, uh, an article, on, I guess it was yesterday, on a new app called Be Real. And Be Real is the solution to the plague of that temptation to posture yourself to be unreal on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, you name it. Because anybody who's logged in gets a prompt and you have two minutes to to hit the button and it takes a photo of what you're looking at and you at the same time. So it's like, be real, what are you really doing right now? It's designed to alleviate the stress and the pressure of projecting a great life and you know what happened? It condensed it and now people have 120 seconds to look awesome no matter what. Because you can't get away from it. The image, the image promises, you know, the image promises that you will be loved, you will be liked, but it drives us crazy when you pursue that at all costs. Or in relationships. One sociologist said, 
You know, we're in a post-Christian society where for thousands of years of human history, regardless of the religious construct, everyone could by and large agree that life and meaning were all about finding yourself in connection with the divine. But we've thrown that out. Nature abhors a vacuum. Something has to rush in to fill that void, and we've replaced it with a number of things. I've already told you about work and image. We've replaced it with romantic relationships. And so now it's the partner's job to fulfill you. You know, it goes all the way back to Jerry Maguire. You complete me, right? And we remember that line right next to show me the money because they're two of the greatest idols in our society. And so we put a pressure on the partner that they can never actually meet because they're a beautiful, broken human being just like you. And you know what happens? It's a recipe for dysfunction. You become possessive and codependent, and they become crumbling under the weight of your demands and resentful. You know, we do this in churches, too. Many of you have been part of churches before whose only vision for your life was to focus on the family. Families matter. It's not the only vision of your whole life. And so many of you have heard messages like, God's plan for your life is that you should get married and have kids. And it makes it sound like if you don't get married by a certain point or ever, you have missed God's plan A and now you're on plan B. Friends, that is a lie. That's idolatry. That's taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. Jesus wasn't married. The Apostle Paul right here wasn't married. Surely God has a plan for your life whether or not you find yourself in marriage. Do you see the pattern? These are good things. I'm not arguing against your career, your ability to look good in public, or against your romantic relationships. I will say if you make them in the place of God and put them in the idle position, they will drive you mad. So the answer is not love these things less. The answer is open yourself up to God's grace more. There's a guy who was pastoring in a big city, and he had watched this woman come through a season of life where she had gone from partner to partner to partner, given herself away physically, sexually, romantically. In so many ways, she was exhausted. And as she had this renewal with Jesus Christ, discovered her own worth in this world, she had this first relationship where she actually knew that she had worth and and she was valuable whether or not this relationship worked out. And she said to this man, you might become my husband, but you will never be my savior. That's a powerful place to be. That's good news for the relationship. What if you could say to your career, I might make it big, I might fail miserably, but it will never be my savior. What if you could say to the way you present yourself in society, I hope they do like me, but they'll never be my savior. You see, friends, that's the end of codependency. That means you can go to work and work as hard as you can with all your effort, energy, passion, and zeal, but you're not working so that at the end of the day, you can hear someone say, I love you. You're great. You're accepted. You're somebody. No, no, no. A Christian hears that voice first thing in the morning. You are my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. I will never leave you or forsake you. Now you can run into this world with courage, with boldness, with humility. See, idols always take more than they give. Jesus is the only one who will never fail you. And then when you fail him, he forgives you. So the question is, what is at the center of your life? What are you running toward right now? And what would be different if it was the grace 
of Jesus in your life. Now, I've got to pick up the last two real quickly here. First one is idols always demand payment. You know, Paul, Gaius, Aristarchus, first of all, great names, Gaius, Aristarchus. Paul's not bad either if your name's Paul. They're asked to pay a price. They're forced to pay a price. They're on the brink of getting killed by this angry mob. You, you attack an idol, it will come to get you with its teeth out. It will cost you something. In your business, choosing not to cut corners in order to make money, choosing not to disparage your competitors publicly, it will cost you. In relationships, choosing not to give your body to just anyone who shows interest in you, it will cost you. In relationships, breaking up with a dysfunctional partner, it will cost you. In a marriage that's in a very difficult season of life, choosing to stick together and work it out and get help, it will cost you. Choosing to be accessible to your neighbors, to create a calendar that has margins so that you can be interrupted by the needs of others, it will cost you. Choosing to pour yourself into a church plant in the middle of North Park called Renew San Diego that exists for the good of all our neighbors and jump in generously and joyfully and sacrificially, it'll cost you. Being known in community, actually being vulnerable and letting other people get to know you and ask you questions and you do the same, that'll cost you. But it will lead to a deeper life. It leads to transformation. It's where the roots of the tree go down real deep so the branches can go real far and there could be a lot of fruit on the tree that gives life to the world. And the other thing is pursuing your idols will cost you even more, as I said earlier. So what's the way forward? Here it is. Jesus actually frees you from these idols at great cost to himself. Remember, I mentioned that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And here, Paul, Gaius, Aristarchus, Alexander, we heard, people are shouting for them to be put down, but they're not hurt. They don't give their lives in this scene. But at the end of the Gospel of Luke, there is another crowd who is shouting at Jesus who had done nothing wrong. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And rather than going free, Jesus willingly gave himself for the brokenness of this world. He was wounded for our transgressions. He took our sin so that we might be forgiven. He was executed outside the city gates so that we might be brought in and know the welcome of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, maybe right now you're saying, wow, Matt, you got to Jesus really quickly right there. I see what you did. They taught you in seminary to kind of find Jesus in the passage tied that one up nicely. But if you paid attention, you identified with something I just said in the last 20 minutes. You recognized that there's something in your life that is competing for attention with the God who knows you and loves you and will never leave you or forsake you. This moment is a gift to you. This is a moment of clarity. What are you going to do about it? Friends, run to him. Because when he is at the center of your life, all of these other things begin to take their rightful place. Instead of demanding your life, they actually become life-giving. Imagine we're becoming continually a community of people who are able to say, as Christ forgives me, I can forgive others. 
as Jesus pours himself into me, I pour myself into this world. And as I'm being poured out, I'm also being filled up. That's what this table tells us that we'll come to in just a moment. And so friends, as we're blessed to be a blessing, let's live this out together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray that you would convince us of your great love for us. That you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and that Spirit both comforts us and convicts us. It points out the areas of our lives where we are, our GPS is broken, but it also says, well, here's how you recalculate. And the good news is, you are already moving toward us. So help us to receive that good news now and activate us for service in your kingdom, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon.